It's May 18th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science and technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're going to start the hour hearing about a couple of upcoming events. First, Sal Salcedo is here to tell us about upcoming Hawaii Drone Academy summer classes. Then we have Melly James returning from the HVCA. She's here to tell us about the next HVCA monthly luncheon. And, of course, uh, finally, we'll talk to Dennis Furukawa and Connie Mitchell about leveraging tech for homelessness. We, of course, always welcome your comments and questions as part of this conversation. So if it strikes you, you can give us a call, 941-3689, or you can send us a tweet on Twitter after the break. Now, of course, uh, we wanted to start off with a little bit of uh, keyboard discussion since, yes. you know, that was a big topic of uh, this morning's uh, Hawaii News Now segment on GeekBeat. And, uh we covered three keyboards, and so, these are all for smartphone devices, yes. iOS particularly. Uh, alternative keyboards. Mm-hmm. Now, dro- uh, Android users have had access to these utilities since 2010. So when iOS users finally got the ability to change the keyboards on their iPhones, it was like, you know, welcome to 2010 in 2014. But the news is that um, several large players are now putting their hat into the ring so that your iPhone can have keyboards from other uh, tech companies and they're mm-hmm. big tech companies. Well, you know, and um, I know you did something on the uh, Google G Board, which is kind of cool because it has a little search capability built right into right. it. Right. So if you love Android, it's in part because Google is all over your phone and can do all sorts of things. But on I- I- iOS, if you want to do anything with Google, you got to switch to various apps to use Google. Now with it in the keyboard, it functions in any app, your messaging app and Facebook app. And so you can click as one of the special keys, a little Google button, and you can search, you can find an address for a restaurant and just paste it into the into the message field rather than switching back and forth between maps, apps just to give you the, the address to a restaurant. Now, you know, I had the uh, luxury of actually downloading a Microsoft keyboard. And I Microsoft? Was, I, well, I was actually astounded by the fact that I actually downloaded a Microsoft uh, little utility for my iOS device. But they do have a pretty cool keyboard. It's called WordFlow. And the uniqueness about WordFlow is that it can do a sort of a arced keyboard that sort of nestles in the corner of your iOS device. So if you have a big, like a six plus, I like have you a do, big phone. <laughs> and then you, but you still want to do some single thumb <laughs> typing, you could get that sort of yeah, arced moves keyboard. all the keyboards around your thumb basically. Yeah, in a, yeah. So that's pretty cool, that's and, pretty cool. and and yours you can, is beautiful. Well, you can customize the back, uh, you know, the background, and have a selection of different kinds of uh, motifs and colors, and you know, various uh, cool looking backgrounds. And you can actually drop a picture in there as well. Yeah. So, so you have a, both Google and Microsoft getting into iOS, which I think is pretty interesting. And then the last keyboard we talked about was called Slash Keyboard, and mm-hmm. this is sort of like for nerds to remember command line interfaces. It's sort of like trying to do that on your smartphone. So you could, again, use it as a keyboard, type messages, but if you hit the slash key, you can call up a number of functions from YouTube to Snapchat to Twitter to Yelp, Foursquare. So like the others, instead of switching back and forth between, say, Foursquare and your friend's message in uh, Facebook, you can just hit that button, send the reviews for a restaurant to your friend right there without switching back and forth. Mm -hmm. So I think that these are really great utilities. They're available in all of your apps. The only thing is you need to watch the tutorials because turning on alternative keyboards in iOS on iPhones is a little 
hairy. It's not a, yeah, it's not a trivial matter. So, uh, Check but you it can, out, though. you know, once you get into it, you can have fun, fun with all kinds of little keyboards. Absolutely. Anyway, we want to get uh, get to our news guests, and we want to welcome Sal Salcido from the Hawaii Drone Academy, and he's here to tell us about a bunch of summer drone workshops. Sal, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks. Welcome back. So you, you know, your claim is that you haven't been on for what about a year? Yeah. So maybe you can share a little bit of a recap of what the Drone Academy was all about. Yeah, it has been a great year. So, um, so for those of you who don't know about the Hawaii Drone Academy, I've been around for about a year and a half. We offer uh, training classes, workshops, uh, as well as activities uh, for the hobbyist, for people interested in getting into small businesses, or for enterprises to look uh, looking to implement drone solutions. So uh, we have classes here, also on Big Island and on Maui. All right. So you have done these workshops before to help people, and these are it's not it's not. These, there are all sorts of workshops: how to pilot a workshop, how to pilot a drone, how to do it responsibly, how to do drone photography. But these, in particular, are about building drones. Correct? Right. Yeah. There's a there's a big push for uh, drones to be involved with STEM. So we were able to partner with Marinol uh, here in town to offer summer school programs. Mm-hmm. So uh, as part of their summer curriculum. Um, th- uh, students are going to be able to come in with no experience and, and no background, start out with a bucket full of parts, and by the end of the class, totally build a drone and then be able to fly it around. That's pretty impressive in the sense that, for me, still, drones are largely, at best, a consumer experience. Like, I'm going to go to the Apple store and get my DJA Phantom 4 for $1,700 or something, and I'll just sort of fly that around. The idea of what I would thought, think to be an incredibly complex piece of technology to be able to get a bucket of parts and make something that will fly and not immediately explode. I mean, mine might explode. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. So how complex is that and how expensive is that? So uh, we run this class almost every other weekend. It's one of the most popular classes we offer with the Drone Academy. Uh, and it's really not that expensive. Uh, and one of the benefits of doing it yourself is it is a little bit cheaper. And you're going to save a lot of money in the long term because it's with these racing drones. That's what people are getting into. It's called first-person view racing drones or FPV. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You have a, an immersive experience because you're, you're flying around with goggles or something as if you're in the aircraft. It's, it's a big speed rush, and you crash. It's, it's not a matter of if you crash, it's just when. And so if you've built it, you'll have an opportunity to know how to fix it. How to fix it, exactly. And so you won't have to pay somebody you know, $75 or $100 an hour to fix it. It's just part of the whole hobby. But the uh, bucket full of parts that you are providing the uh, students, uh, these aren't the racing drones, are they? I mean, these are more fundamental, I guess, in terms of its, uh, its uh, uh, construction. Uh, no, so the ones that for Marinol, the specific we offer, we offer do a, offer a number of classes, but the Marinol summer school pro- program will be racing drones. The real deal. Yeah, I mean they're not you know they're not the F one version, sure. but uh, they're 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 a fairly good quality. They're you know souped up Honda Honda Civic. So so how uh-huh. do you how do you articulate that kind of t- the specs? I mean, how fast do these go? How how long do they fly? So they they really they they. Uh, to equate them to a Formula One car would be would be fairly applicable. It's not a sedan. It's not going to drive around for a half hour, an hour. They're really designed for racing. So they're lightweight. They're carbon fiber. Everything that is not needed is slicked off. You're going to be flying for about five minutes, uh, and uh, you're going to go uh, within line of sight. So you're not going to go really any farther than a football field. But these, so, oh, sorry, oh, but these are really fast response in the sense that, you know, again, the drone I got to play with had all sorts of stabilization, and if I let go of the thing, it just sort of 
was very inert and safe. It sounds like these are always on the move, and you're right. They're, 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 they're going to crash. So do you need lightning reflexes? You, yeah, and that's honestly why people – it can almost be addictive because it's, it's really – especially when you get into the first-person view, it, it's like a first-person shooter game except it's real and you really have a, a, an actual experience out there. And, I mean, it is, it is a, 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 drill and, a drill and rush to say the least. So, Sal, I, I, um, I take it that the – Industry or perhaps the uh, participation for people wanting to get into drones is, is, is changing a little bit. One year ago when we had you on, it was for the most part flying a drone and maybe getting it so that it could take some pictures and do some aerial mm-hmm. uh, views of, of, of places. And now it sounds more like there's a, a stronger interest in sort of this, this racing uh, aspect of competitive drone. drone. Right. Yeah. So are there sort of this, not bifurcation, but you know, are there these kind of two communities that are evolving where you have the photography and, and aerial view drones versus the sort of racing and, and souped-up drones? A- absolutely. There are, uh, and, uh, and people cross between them, both of them. The, uh, the photography drones are more like the Cadillacs, so they're, they're going to be more stable. You're going to be able to take some beautiful, beautiful photos with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, people love that. They're able to show that off, you know, and, and, and have that as a souvenir. Um, but it really isn't that challenging. The, the advances we have in microelectronics and all the GPS stabilization Really, it, the focus is on photography. You know, the all the you know gain and ISO and white balance and framing shots and composition. Whereas with the drone racing, it's really about the adrenaline rush of of going out and actually controlling something. Okay. I've seen that. It's a lot of fun. So tell me about the Marinol Workshop. When is this and uh, how much is it? Yeah, so uh, Marinol Workshop is June 7th through July 15th. Uh, it's a two-hour class, three times a day. So mm. it's offered at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and 1 p.m. I see. Uh, and then uh, Marinol set the price, but it's really not that expensive. It's under $600. Okay. Well, again, what I'm thinking, if I wanted a drone, I'm going to budget fifteen to $1,700. Right. That sounds like a lot. And, and here you get to learn how to build it, and then you get the whole experience of, of you know being there with an instructor. And you and, have another uh, set of workshops? Yeah. And so then we're also doing a one-week boot camp. Uh, and in that one, it's a little bit more expensive, but you get to take the drone home. And that one is July 18th through the 22nd. And that is, again, also with Marinol. And uh, both of these tie in to the uh, – we are doing an event uh, at the Oahu Maker Fair on June 25th. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's uh, it's going to be uh, out there at Iolani School. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have beginners or anybody who's interested to come out for free, come out, you know, experience part of the community, do some great drone racing and, and skills events. And it's not limited to racers. If you have just aerial birds as well, uh, anybody can come out and fly. I remember last year you had uh, part of the, I think, the baseball field. Field and, yep. and and you were running some races or, or just some drone drone uh, flights. Yep, yeah, that and uh, we were the first ones on the island to get into that, and uh, that really is a pride point. We've we for a long time strive to help educate the community and promote safe, responsible drone use. Okay. Well, certainly, I mean, if we come out to the Maker Fair, we, we don't have to wear helmets or anything while these things are zipping around. Will we? Right. Nope. It's all going to be. I mean, safety is really the number one paramount. Just so. stand behind the fence. <laughs> so, yeah. where can someone go to find more information about these workshops? Yeah. So you can find out more information on all our classes or if you're interested in you know uh, looking to implement drones in your business or start a business at hawaiidroneacademy.com and if you're interested specifically just in drone racing we have a separate website called droneracerx.net all right you're going to send me those uh, urls absolutely we'll okay, put those send, up in yeah, our show notes at uh, bitemarkscafe.org yeah. that's right well thanks Sal, for joining us 
And of course, uh, we have Melly James here from the Hawaii Venture Capital Association, and and I think she does a monthly appearance on the show talking about the uh, the luncheons. But this one is coming up, and it's coming up pretty quick, and it's an interesting one because you have a panel of venture capitalists. Is that correct? Yes, it is, Bert. And actually, the wonderful thing today is that I'm going to be here a week in advance. So if you are interested in going, it's actually next week, Thursday, May 26th. Fantastic. Yep. So now I uh, I had gone through the Blue Startups program, and certainly anyone involved in a startup knows that you have a great idea, you have a great team, but funding is sort of important also to get to where you want to go. And through that, there are various ways you find investors. So uh, one class would be venture capitalists. So how would you characterize where they fit into that broader ecosystem? When are people ready to look for a venture cap? Mm-hmm. Great question, Ryan. So, you know, we, we also host a luncheon on the accelerators, which is, mm-hmm. you know, funding at a much earlier stage uh, when you do have an idea or you're looking to scale. Um, we've got Blue Startups, we have Accelerate UH, we have GVS, we have Energy Accelerator, some awesome, awesome accelerators here locally in Hawaii that are helping a lot of these startups elevate to that next level of getting to that seed round. Um, so on our panel, we actually have an angel investor who is representing the Hawaii Angels, Steve Markowitz, to look for that kind of next level of funding post-accelerator funding. Um, and then past that, uh, we've got you know a couple venture capitalists. We've got Omar Sultan, who is with the Upside Fund, mm. as well as Accelerate UH. He will be representing some of the accelerators, as well as the Upside Fund, which is through the university, uh, which is more of a seed stage fund. Um um, investing anywhere up to about 800000 And then we've got Tim Dick, who is a general partner for Startup Capital Ventures. And that is a VC fund that uh, splits its time in Silicon Valley as well as Hawaii. And they've um, invested in quite a few companies here in Hawaii at that those kind of later stages. Um, and, of course, we've got Vijoy Chatterjee, which we're really excited to have. He is the chief investment officer for the Hawaii Retirement System. So, um, hmm. yeah. So they, they had invested uh, quite a bit of money in the high tip program, mm-hmm. the Hawaii um, Targeted Investment Program, um, where they uh, it was more of a fund of funds uh, where about five to seven venture capital funds um, were, were, um, were deployed money uh, in, in looking at like Hawaii companies. So what is it that you want to get out of your panelists uh, for this luncheon? Is it the, the state of venture capital in Hawaii you know, maybe the state of entrepreneurship in Hawaii. What is it that uh, you want to get out of them? Yeah. So again, I mentioned that we we do the accelerator um, luncheon, and that really is that kind of first that next step for a lot of these entrepreneurs. It's extremely relevant as to I've got this idea. What's that next step? Mm-hmm. Right. And that we've got an incredible entre- uh, accelerators. That next phase is something that. I think a lot of people don't really understand as to what is angel investing, what is venture capital. Right. Um, is my company appropriate for venture funding? Um, and, and really, what could be those later stages? And, and does that really exist here? And so this panel really is taking a close look. And Tim Dick's going to do a keynote looking at uh, the state of venture capital nationally compared to what's going on locally mm-hmm. and really give us a great snapshot um, Steve Markowitz just went to the ACA, which is the, the angel conference, and looking at what's going on nationally in terms of angel investing. So I think it's really great for 
for our our members and as well as the business community and, and the people that do come to the luncheon to really see what's going on nationally and how we're comparing um, in Hawaii and, and seeing some of the great things happening and resources available that we do have presence here. We are moving the needle. Uh, there are resources past the accelerators to get funding here in Hawaii and and con- to continue to keep your company here. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually very important because I and we love following the uh, entrepreneurial and innovation ecosystem in Hawaii on our show. And I feel that even over the course of our years on the air, we've seen this evolution. Now, you do you will have representation from the seed level. You will have Tariq and the Upstart Fund at UH and working with the accelerators and having ideas. But I remember that before, a lot of the questions and the concerns were about those next steps. Mm-hmm. And I do feel, and maybe you can confirm or deny, I do feel that, that those next steps, that that pathway is a lot more robust today than it was maybe three or four years ago. Yes, definitely. And and the fact that some of these entities have been around now for a while, you know, VCs don't ever like to invest by themselves. They, they like to co-invest with other funds. And so as we've increase our relationships with other funds um, in the Valley nationally, as have uh, has have these other entities, it really has created this robust uh, group of venture capital funding options that a lot of our startups have access to by the nature of um, our relationships that have expanded as we've invested alongside other funds. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Tim uh, is going to be doing kind of a keynote, and he does have a very good perspective on the whole venture world, being the fact that he has a foot here and he has a, another foot in, in Silicon Valley. Are there others like Tim in our marketplace? Because I know he's got a lot of experience. Um, who else can we turn to as sort of these, these you know, the venture capital community? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we've got a lot of hidden VCs here. Um, mm. And and Tim's done a great job kind of straddling the two worlds. Um, you know, looking at, I, I don't know if I should be mentioning specific names. I feel like they're going <laughs> to get their door pounded down or something. <laughs> Hope, hopefully a couple of them will be here. Um, but, you know, you know, looking at the, the accelerators, a lot of them do have some great information as to um, who you can talk to at a VC level for that next phase. Um, we, we've got some really interesting people, even on the Accelerate UH board. We have quite a few VCs. You look at Barry Weinman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at some of those people, um, which have great breadth of resource and information. Yeah, and I guess the point is that, uh, you know, going through the accelerators, you have the mentor pool, you have the connections into the VC world. So if you are going that route, I mean, you would probably help open those doors anyway. Yes, yeah. that is our job. All right. So it's the, the this luncheon, always a great luncheon, always Many more brains on on the panel and not enough minutes in the session. But mm-hmm. if somebody wanted to participate, it is next Thursday, lots of time. Um, how, where is it going to take place and how can someone sign up? Yes. So it will be Thursday, May 26th at the Plaza Club, which is downtown on the 21st floor or excuse me, the 20th floor, 1130 a.m. to 130 p.m. And you can it's on Eventbrite as well as at our website, hvca.org. Okay, fantastic. I'll put up the Eventbrite uh, on the show notes later on tonight. Bitemarkscafe.org. Great. Thank, thank you, you Melly, for Thank you for us. joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Dennis Furukawa and Connie Mitchell 
to talk about leveraging tech for homelessness. How can technology or even the innovation economy play a role in solving homelessness and other social issues? We'd, of course, love your thoughts, suggestions, or questions as part of that conversation. The phone number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, toll-free 877-941-3689. And you know it. We're live in the studio monitoring Twitter, so you can reach us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Even if you don't know much about art, you could probably recognize a trademark Warhol, right? Tomato, black bean, onion, pepper pots, um, all kinds of different soups. I'm Kai Rizdal. The soup cans that went missing. We'll have that the rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street all next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. What's it like trying to resolve serious political conflicts like Hawaiian sovereignty or genetically modified crops? What do these conflicts say about leadership in this state? We'll talk about these questions and a lot more with two people who have worked in the trenches on many of them, Peter Adler and Linda Colburn. That's Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Dennis Furukawa and Connie Mitchell. Dennis is an architect, entrepreneur based in Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area. And for over 20 years, he has developed numerous private and public projects integrating architecture, engineering, environmental science, art, and public policy. Connie is the executive director for the Institute for Human Services and at the forefront of finding solutions to address homelessness. And of course, how can tech be applied to help address the homeless uh, issue here in Hawaii? And of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha, Bert. Nice to be here. Connie, you know, we're going to start with you, and we're going to throw you the tough question. (laughs) You know, you've been involved with, you know, social services and and addressing the homeless um, situation in Hawaii for for many years. Maybe can you, in sort of a nutshell, Give us a sense of how things are going and, and you know, what are some of the, the real tough areas to solve. I think I'm really actually pretty excited, even though a lot of people see a lot of homeless people and think that, wow, what's being done? I think a lot has been done, and we certainly at IHS have seen a lot of people. We've been housing a lot of people. We've also been really innovating, you know, different ways to reach people mm-hmm. and invite them into services and to try different things. And, of course, um, you know, you probably heard about our um, Sand Island experiment (laughs) with the city. But, you know, it's really been a wonderful um, option for people. You know, it's called Halemaliola, which is a lodge of healing inspiration. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a place now where people can come. They can bring their pets. Couples don't have to get broken up when they come in. Mm. There's a lot of, you know, different ways that it's serving a different population or people that haven't been served before. And we also recently opened our Tutu Burt's house, which is a medical respite house, you know, for people coming out of the hospital. So we're thinking about all different ways, you know, to serve um, gap groups that are homeless. 
and really finding that there's a lot of energy around it. And a lot of people want to get behind a lot mm-hmm. of different things like that. I know that um, the headlines had mentioned a few months ago the uh, emergency mm-hmm. declaration on the part of the governor in terms of the issue of homelessness. And I think a lot of people will naturally read from that that this means it's really, really bad or worse than it's been. And I think that's certainly a part of it. But uh, for those who don't know, it, that that kind of a statement, that uh, policy statement, that executive statement also means that it, I, if this is correct, that it makes more resources available. It starts to kind of focus uh, resources in a way that might not have been available before. Absolutely. And I think this last legislative session was a great one, you know, for um, at least garnering some new resources for tackling homelessness. The um, $12 million that was allocated to the homeless coordinator to actually figure out, you know, what to do with was um, open money in the sense that it wasn't dedicated to real specific things. So they knew that homelessness changes all the time and that there might be need to do something different. So in actuality, um, I think some of the money I'm hoping will go toward data management. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about that. But okay. Data management. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like something Bert would really be interested in. Well, <clears throat> before we jump into that, I, you did say innovation, and there are things that you're noticing that incorporate more innovative, creative thought. What is it that is is really driving new innovations to address some of these social issues? I think we can't stay the way that we've been all this time. You know, things change, and we have to really look and evaluate whether things are working or not. Data tells us, you know, whether we're really making a difference or not in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, technology has advanced. We want to use technology, you know, to really help us, you know, toward that. But really, we can't do the same thing because I think funders are demanding more results. You know, they want to know what kind of outcomes we have. I agree. You know, we don't want to be throwing money, you know, at a problem without knowing what you're really getting out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Dennis, uh, very recently I saw you give a great presentation at the University of Hawaii Tech Showcase. It's a regular event that talks about the innovation happening at the university and specifically innovations that have potential to become sustainable businesses, become success, something that can draw investment and diversify our economy. But I think that what caught many people's eye and what triggered this conversation we're having here is that there is also a movement within startups, within the innovation ecosystem for social investing, for social-oriented startups. You know, we can maybe find the next big Instagram, but an Instagram that feeds people, an Instagram that brings health to people. And I thought that your um, technology was really, really interesting. So for those who missed that fantastic UH Tech uh, showcase, it's time for the elevator pitch. Could you share with everybody what it is that you're up to? Without the visuals. Yeah, no slides. Yeah, no slides. (laughs) I'll give it a shot. So uh, central to what we're doing is uh, it's recycling water. That's the fundamental um, aspect. uh, And in the act of recycling water, um, you have a resource. And that resource can be utilized in all kinds of ways. It can be used in in agriculture, obviously. Uh, And um, the uh, renewable energy area is uh, is involved in that. But um, we see it as opportunities. And the the creation of value uh, often starts with water. And, um, Mm. And, you know, one of the big 
stumbling blocks in terms of development is is creating uh, a sustainable uh, water resource. So people dig wells. Uh, people are into desalination. Uh, you know, uh, there's all kinds of strategies to. Uh, try and develop a water resource where there's none, but the, the easiest one is actually to tap into a wastewater resource and clean it up. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Connie had mentioned, uh, you know, the uh, Sand Island experiment and uh, the one that's sort of sponsored by the city. Is that one that you're involved in as well? We're proposing to put in a wastewater treatment system that's modular and uh, highly energy efficient. The uh, objective would be to recycle the water that's used to flush toilets, uh, treat it, and use it to flush toilets again. Mm. Um, the uh, The benefits are that, one, you don't have to waste a bunch of water, and then the, the bigger one is that you don't have to dispose of a whole bunch of uh, sewage, which right. is really expensive. Yeah, at first glance, looking at those beautiful slides that our listeners will just have to imagine, I saw something like, say, those large restroom trailers that they set up at a carnival or something. Um, within it, different bathroom stalls, maybe basically kind of like little porta potties all lined up. But that that trailer structure is self-contained. I mean, it does a lot of things without needing to draw as much water from any water source and without wasting it, or it sounds like without having the big pump truck come and have to suck it out every day. So uh, can you describe that kind of that trailer system? We've miniaturized a, a full wastewater treatment plant. Hmm. So something that is as complex as the, you know, the Honolulu Uli wastewater treatment plant or the one over in East Honolulu. Uh, it has a number of processes, uh, so screening, uh, biological digestion, um, disinfection. Uh, but once it's once it's cleaned up and disinfected, it's ready to be reused. So we've packaged that with uh, aircraft style bathrooms, mm. like the kinds. Uh, actually, they're they're similar to the ones that you find on on cruise ships. So pre pre manufactured, uh, and they use uh, highly efficient um, uh, pumps and uh, space efficient designs. Uh, and we just pair them up with our wastewater treatment plant, uh, and the water goes around and around. Hmm. Now, it's not like a completely closed system because there's sorts of limits to, like, for instance, how much salt essentially hmm. accumulates within the water. Mm-hmm. But um, but we hook it up to a reservoir of water, which is used to wash your hands. Um, and then so that, that, that volume of water actually essentially displaces water throughout the system. Uh, But, you know, the amount of water that you use to wash your hands is a small fraction of the water that is used to flush the toilets. So it becomes uh, highly efficient in terms of water. And and then rather than focus on the absolute destruction of of every uh, molecule of uh, pollution, there's a lot of nutrient value in in wastewater, uh, and we see that as a critical part of creating sustainability. So, water nutrients equals farming. 
Um, and uh, and we spend a lot of nutrients, you know, even on things that aren't edible, right? Uh, um, landscaping is is one of those things, and uh, and landscaping uh, is uh, the larger part of like every home's water use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, when you can uh, harness water recycling to um, to tackle all of those large water uses that leaves a lot more water available for drinking and for food production. So, so, so Dennis, you know, you said that you are, are um, sort of pitching this to the city or, you know, trying to get into the uh, Sand Island uh, experiment. What is your value proposition to them? I mean, this sounds really great, but what is it that will ultimately convince them that this is the system to go with? Uh, the fundamental value proposition is that it's very cost effective. Um, everybody who's ever had their uh, septic tank pump knows that that's very expensive. And if uh, your septic system um, fails, then you're calling out that septic caller all of the time. Mm. Well, at the um, Halemaleola facility, uh, they don't actually have a um, septic system. So everything that they're, uh, all of the water that is going through that facility is being hauled. So, so Connie, when you mentioned it, uh, and I, I'm not sure exactly the, what, you know, the relationship between the, the Sand Island experiment and the Institute for Human Services is, but when you see the, the um, you know, the Sand Island location, are there, Areas that you see that might be perhaps uh, better better leveraged in terms of perhaps something that that uh, Dennis is doing, or I mean, w- are there some efficiencies that could be gained by you know systems like that? Oh, absolutely! I was excited when uh, Dennis was kind of sharing what he was um, wanting to maybe make happen because we do want to put landscaping in. When we first looked at the place, there was nothing, you know, on the property. And so we definitely are interested in adding more landscaping. And we're also interested in doing some farming, you know, like doing some gardening, having people really raise, you know, different kinds of vegetables, different kinds of plants, you know, to really add. We wanted to do like a Lao Lapa'au garden, you Mm -hmm, know, for healing mm -hmm. herbs, you know, all those things could be beneficial and it would benefit from is that the role that IHS plays in the San Island location I mean as as managers facilitators of that yes you know so basically the city turned over the property to us to manage and so we're hosting the people that come you know and are availing themselves of shelter and the services that we're providing and you know as much as I call it an experiment I'd rather call it a, a navigation center it's a housing navigation center where people are speeded into housing once they come in. Mm-hmm. Now, um, just broadly speaking, I think certainly, well, let's put it this way, people who spend time in Chinatown know that restrooms ac- restroom access is certainly an issue mm-hmm. for people who do not have shelter, mm-hmm. um, but generally access to water, whether it's in a homeless community in a, uh, a developed city like Honolulu or anywhere else in the world, access to water, drinking water is also uh, significant. Connie, can you uh, maybe il- illustrate more of the need side? I can, I can almost see the beauty of a uh, fully sustainable and a recycling water recycling system like one that Dennis has developed, but how dire is it on the other side in terms of needing things like this to to support these these homeless people? I think the uh, the technology that he's talked about is just amazing because it really does make available that resource. You know, they say that 
water is the probably the oil of the future, you know, because Absolutely. it's going to be so scarce, you know, for everyone. We need to think about that now, you know, and I think for um, people who are homeless in general, it is very difficult to access, you know, hygiene facilities and clean water. And they suffer a lot of disease and illness because of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that we really need to think about how we can help people because they are not just quote homeless people. They are our brothers and sisters in the community. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Connie, uh, when I visited the IHS, I I remember you have a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, aquaculture, aquaponics, uh, you know, facilities that people can actually learn some new right. skills on the rooftop right. of your facility. And so you see that concept of trying to get people uh, let's um, experience with something new that perhaps could evolve into another skill set. Absolutely. And so you see this, uh, this Sand Island facility being much like that? Absolutely. I think that we have an opportunity to uh, get people engaged in some things that they've never done before. You know, if they're doing um, that agricultural Mm-hmm. You know, kind of work. Um, we actually have an urban ag program, you know, at our facilities in the urban core area. But out at San Island, you know, it's really some space that we don't have in the urban core. We've had to use our roof because we didn't have anywhere else, you know, to do something like that. But I do think that in speaking with Dennis also, teaching people how to do that and then, you know, kind of creating maybe some potential farming opportunities uh-huh. for people. And we do have some opportunities on this island as well as the other islands. I don't see any reason why we can't grow more of our food and have our own food basket in Hawaii. So, um, Dennis, when you're doing this as a startup, I mean, certainly as a person who wants to do good things for his community, to develop innovative technologies, but it's also the intent is to be a sustainable and successful business. Um, you know, I think the company I work for, for Information Service, and any enlightened company also tries to do community service and help the community. We've come up with ideas for programs and projects that we think could help the community. But the question of- often is, what's the business case? You know, be doing a good thing for the community makes everybody feel good. But if you're going to be going to venture capitalists and you're going to be finding funding, at the end of the day, they're going to want to make money with the idea. So how is navigating that space for a technology like yours? Uh, that's an interesting challenge. Um, but the, uh, you know, success is uh, really a matter of um, just showing people that everything works, right? So the um, the showcase of, of putting a technology in like ours at a homeless encampment and showing how much money that can be saved, mm. um, how much better off the well-being of those residents are, um, how we are uh, avoiding uh, a lot of the uh, you know, detrimental situations that are out there or preventing right all of that pollution that is out there where you've got you know groups of people who lack any sanitation. Uh, those are um, are, are really Compelling. Valuable yeah. and and compelling, yes. So your customer Lessons. would be uh, would be a government, and it would be lucrative to you in the sense that you would provide that service. But the government would be happy because they're saving money. Uh, we're we are looking at uh, large landowners uh, and uh, governments and NGOs. Our 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 main focus right now is is it's the migrants and homeless. 
just the large groups of, of those people. And, and I don't know if you know this, but um, there are more people in the United States actually served by or more, more communities actually served by septic systems than by sewage systems. Hmm. So um, there's a, a tremendous need for uh, systems other than putting untreated sewage into the ground because that's not Sustainable, uh, sustainable sure. in terms of, especially in terms of the water budget. And another uh, way that it could possibly be used, you know, we've been talking also about mobile hygiene centers, you know, that they have been started in San Francisco and other places on the mainland and are talking about using them here. But then you have to think about, okay, where are you going to hook up for the sewage? And so I'm kind of excited because maybe, you know, your technology could actually be hooked up to some of these hygiene buses that they're talking about. You know, I want to um, actually kind of explore that and find out what is – it sounds so obvious that it might fit and work in the situation that we're describing, but why hasn't it been <laughs> adopted? So we'll, we'll answer that question. We'll, take, we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with Connie Mitchell and Dennis Furukawa about leveraging tech for homelessness. Of course, we'd love to hear from you too. You can call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, it's toll free with 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the latest Freakonomics Radio, what do you do if you're a filmmaker or novelist and you want to create more suspense? Easy. Just ask an economist. We view the construction of suspense and surprise as optimally economizing on a scarce resource. Brian Grazer, Harlan Coben, and more on the latest Freakonomics Radio. Thursday evening at 7, following With Good Reason. On the next On Being, storyteller and humorist Kevin Kling on the laughter and losses we grow into. We all experience loss, and it's part of being human. It's what gives us our richness. And part of me now that I see that and recognize that, now I'm all excited about it. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Connie Mitchell and Dennis Furukawa about innovations in social services. And, of course, you can give us a call. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we're talking about uh, Dennis's sort of, you know, innovation in these rest units, rest station units uh, for water recycling and and, um, you know, using it for bathrooms, I guess, right? And it sounds like such a beneficial thing and a cost-effective thing. Why isn't it that it is being embraced more so, especially right here in our backyard? Any theories on that, Dennis? Uh, well, the the fact of the matter is, is we've just started uh, pushing this idea or offering it as a as a product. We spent the last four years demonstrating uh, and, and refining the technology, the Corfit technology, uh, so that it's uh, robust, 
we can rely on it, and we feel very comfortable in actually putting it out as a product. Mm. The uh, the the reception that we're getting is actually really tremendous. Uh, the um, our, our market, though, uh, we're not really focused on the individual. Uh, for instance, like residential user, mm-hmm. um, we're really trying to focus on on the you know vast number of people who don't have access to sanitation or uh, places where infrastructure is uh, incomplete. And uh, uh, for instance, like India, uh, you know, Southeast Asia. But like at the Hale uh, Mauliola, it would be nice to have that as a unit to be leveraged. And also maybe perhaps some training be worked around the system. Do you see that happening in the not-too-distant future? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that's, that, that is great about our technology is that it's actually quite simple and robust. Uh, we don't rely on – sorry, but we don't rely on a lot of high-tech. Uh, the, the basic biology is the oldest forms of life on the planet. Uh, uh, they are – little captive slaves that just love to eat um, sewage. The only thing that you have to do (laughs) is, yeah, yum. The only thing that you have to do is give them the proper environment Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. which to thrive. Uh, So, and in Hawaii, that's really, really easy to do. I love the idea of really fundamental science. You know, it's not high tech. It's not what people will think of necessarily as a a tech startup, but it is doing important work. Now, Connie, um, this might be a a weird question, but I am curious. When we're talking about applying technology to social services, uh, many people might have the brainstorm like, I'm going to come up with an app that will help find resources, or I will, uh, or Bert actually did a great event with the the city, I believe, called Icon Local, which was trying to develop a universal visual language for social services, because not all homeless people, for example, speak English. Mm. But what are, what are you seeing in this broader space as you interact with other service providers, perhaps in other communities? Is it really kind of getting down to brass tacks and basic science, or are you seeing something that maybe a Facebook uh, investor or tech person might get excited about? Actually, it's both, you know, because I think um, a project like the one and a product like the one Dennis is talking about really opens the door to maybe a whole new industry that, you know, really we could participate in and create jobs for people. But I think, um, you know, I've been really looking at how um, IT, you know, the information technology could really help us in what we've been doing. And it's been very helpful to gather data on what we've been doing and keeping track of um, not only the outcomes, but the people themselves. I think, well, if I could expand on that one specifically, mm-hmm. what we see in the news and what we know happens is these census collections, these yes. surveys of where the homeless population is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is already a difficult thing to do since it's not like they have street addresses right. and they right. can get mail. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it is that they're frequently displaced. Right. So without a reasonably good method in place, you might count someone seven times and not count someone at all. Right. So is that kind of one of the areas that you think data could be applied and mind for insights? Absolutely. Every year when we do our point in time count, it takes a long time after we've counted everybody to deduplicate everybody and to, you know, just really make sure that the data is clean. I think if there were um, applications that really helped us to uh, manage our data easier, you know, on a day-to-day basis, 
in other cities, I think they've developed some ways of being able to do the count without actually doing as much counting anymore. Because if on a day-to-day basis, you're able to know who the people are in your community that are homeless, then when you have to start doing the point-in-time count, you already know most of the people because they're all in a database already to help you know that, okay, this we've got this many people in this area and they need this type of service. Like or, maybe they or, need, you know, or maybe some percentage of them are no longer in that population exactly, or some yes. have been added to the right, population. Right. Now, now, Connie, you mentioned that you, um, there are some innovations in doing the surveys, and, and you call this the, the point-in-time count um, and the idea of deduplicating. What are some of the things that uh, perhaps technology could be applied to or IT tech, you know, uh, information technology applied to help do this process a little bit more uh, let's say, quickly or more efficiently? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we think about doing is mapping. And so, you know, in other communities, they've used, like, GPS sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. to figure out where people are and, um, you know, to help find them again. Like, you know, when you go and you actually outreach someone and then later on you want to go and find them, sometimes you're not able to find them. So I think there are ways that some communities are being able to track people better so that they're able to serve them better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing is to just um, maybe, like, a lot of people lose their documents. Like, you know, when there are interventions and some of their papers get lost or documents, if the documents can be, you know, loaded up into the cloud uh-huh. you know, to access any time, then they'll never lose them because they're always there, you know, to help them get, like, you know, the what they need to apply for something else. Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I have mm-hmm. a question then. I mean, mm-hmm. if someone was looking to develop solutions, how how confident would someone be that uh, the homeless population has access to technology themselves? You know, I would imagine you would not. be surprised, okay. right? <laughs> I would say that most of them have um, a cell phone and many of them have smartphones, you know. So I think, um, you know, the uh, idea of having people access in the um, homeless service community, we also have people who are very intent on helping make that accessible to people. So most of the shelters do have technology available so that people can get online. I think there are some internet cafes that are being established by people like Hawaiian Hope, another nonprofit organization. So it's just really you know a lot of um, opportunity and potential for use of technology. But we've got to be in that mindset to make that application. And they do take advantage of library services, I guess. Yes. Well, so, Connie, I mean, you you bring up a great point, and and I like the way that you're sort of doing a reverse pitch, but how would someone that is uh, tech-inclined, and there are a community of of developers, programmers that are very interested in in, in providing some assistance, some help, how would they engage with your organization or the you know the service provider community that address you know the homelessness i mean how do how can the tech community actually be a part of the solution well you know um IHS is part of Partners in Care, mm-hmm. which is the continuum of care of homeless service providers and we have a um what we call the HMIS, the um, Homeless Management of Information System. And we are trying to extract data out of it for different purposes Mm -hmm. and developing some different reports. And IHS as an organization also does that, you know, to really help us keep track of the work that we're doing. We can always use people who are interested in helping us with that programming. You know, if, um, you know, I had mentioned to you, you know, the um, SQL kind of programming that we need. But um, if people are interested 
with uh, helping IHS, we have a website. You can actually um, communicate with us at info at ihs-hawaii.org. Mm-hmm. And then with um, Partners in Care, they're also online. You know, um, people can call or, you know, just uh, leave a message. <clears throat> now, well, you you mentioned data, and, of course, data is an important uh, asset. Are there some challenges that you're facing in terms of perhaps aggregating all this data that are coming in from different places? I mean, what is what is a challenge in terms of, you know, actually managing all this data that might be in disparate locations? Well, right now, you know, we're having some challenges with the um, HMIS system because we've put a lot of information in, but for most people who are involved in tech, they probably realize, okay, in order to make use of the data, you have to develop reports to extract the data and make sense of them and analyze them. Or an API that can be queried from the outside exactly, in some structured exactly. way. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's really important, you know, for us to get those reports going. You know, we'd like to be able to tell our funders, you know, the legislature, the government, you know, how well we're doing or, you know, like what we need. But it's difficult when you can't extract the data and you know, through reports. Yeah, and visualization is very important to give someone an at a glance view yes. of your success yes. rate. Mm-hmm. Well I I'm getting messages from my my friends. I and I think <laughs> I love that I love that you're open to working with community groups and, and community companies because I can think of a ag tech startup that was excited by the idea of the farm on the roof and training farmers and working there. So uh, we will definitely be in touch. Now, Dennis, when you're working on your startup, um, part of that process is doing research on what else is out there, competitive systems. Um, So I want to ask you the same question I asked, Connie, which is what are you seeing in terms of the uh, social startup area, you know, people looking to do well as well as do good? Hmm. Uh, I I think that there is a, a, a lot of interest right now in the Gates Foundation's right uh-huh. push to reinvent the toilet. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, technology. Uh, there are a, l- a number of technology approaches that are being tested in that area. Um, uh, the 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 number of uh, of applications uh, of you know biological systems uh, kind of pales in comparison to the number of like high technology mm-hmm. like thermodynamic uh, systems. Um, so, uh, you know, those are interesting, uh, but technically very, very um, challenging, mm. I think, to, uh, to support at a, at a large scale. Well, there is, I know personally, the person, some people doing the work here for the global Gates Foundation work for the sanitation system. So Hawaii is in many ways still connected to work like that. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, um, the social Impacts, I think, are are well understood, uh, and that uh, you know that there are a, a number of uh, organizations out there who are are really trying to solve the uh, issue of open defecation, uh, and that's a, a a big global initiative. So I don't think that there's uh, any shortage of willpower, um, but it all comes down to getting traction with. The, you know, the users and finding the funding. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, Connie, when we talk about homeless communities, uh, they're not one homogenous group. No. I mean, they're all different and right. they all have different issues. Uh, in terms of some of the things that might be applicable, whether it's, you know, technology or smartphones or, you know, access to the cloud, um, 
how would you address the issue that, you know, with all the different kinds of communities that are out there, is technology only able to perhaps address a portion of that? And so what about the rest? Well, I think that, you know, the different applications that you make through technology can address dif- different problems. You know, you really um, have opportunities with, say, like, you know, communities that are pretty well developed, like, say, the Boat Harbor um, folks, you know, out in Waianae, they may um, benefit from more access to technology. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. you know, what they have out there. But definitely, you know, it puts them in touch with more opportunities, more resources, perhaps, you know, to have access some other people may feel like, you know, um, they want to come into different shelters if they have Wi-Fi, say, you know, that mm-hmm. they could, you know, use their smartphones, you know, to do whatever they need to do, whether it's communicating with their friends and family or, you know, doing other business. So I think, you know, really, um, it's really coming down to assessing what people want and what people need and really kind of thinking, okay, well, how can technology play a part, you know, mm-hmm. in this? Because really, um, when I... Whenever I am told, oh, well, how do we solve this problem? I say it's not one way that we're going to solve this problem anyway. And I think even with the use of technology, we need to think about the individuality of people and what they are asking for and what they need. Mm-hmm. And I, I, again, just to stress, if people were interested in contributing, it sounds like you're very open to a number of ideas mm-hmm. and approaches. Mm-hmm. So if you are a SQL database expert, probably get in touch. If right. you are good at data visualization, probably get in yes. touch. Uh-huh. Um, it, is there, in, a, in addition to those needs, are there any others that uh, strike you right now as top of mind that people might be able to ruminate and think about in, in order to see if they can come up with a way to help you? I think, you know, we catalog um, a lot of calls. You know, we are, you know, really needing to um, find efficient ways, you know, to really get back to people, um, find efficient ways to just kind of take the calls and be able to route them, you know, to different people. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how technology can help with that, but I know that that is a challenge. You know, we're really trying to track movement of people so that we can get back to them, you know, and really make sure that we can um, ensure that the services they need are Sustained delivered. Yeah. So, so Connie, if people wanted to, again, uh, you know, get back in touch with you or learn more about what the, what the programs IHS is, is involved in, where can they go? Please visit our um, website at www.ihs. Hawaii-org, uh, I'm sorry, .org. And then um, if you want to call and let us know about anything, um, 447-2824. Okay, good. And uh, Dennis, where can we find out more about uh, you know, these, these container-sized rest <laughs> stops? Uh, well, um, the easiest thing is to email me, uh, but uh, we have a website, www.realgreenpower.com. Mm. Uh, and you can email me at dennis at realgreenpower.com. Very good. Investors, welcome. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Connie Mitchell is the Executive Director of the Institute for Human Services, and, of course, Dennis Furukawa is the CEO and founder of Real Green Power, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll find out how tech fared in the 2016 legislative session. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. 
And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Bite Marks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, we'll leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's Amber Arcade and a song called Right Now. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.